It's week nine of 2018, and this week we're going to talk with Patrick Lowndes of VendorHawk. He's going to tell us how we can maximize our SaaS products. But before that, we're going to get to a lot of news, including a lot of articles from the Mobile World Congress in Barcelona that just came out. That's all coming up on the IT Pro TV podcast starting right now. Hello and welcome to the IT Pro TV podcast. I'm your host, Peter Van Rysdam, and it is week nine here of 2018. We are already in March. The uh, the flowers are blooming outside. It's just lovely. And uh, and we're stuck here inside in Don's office. So, Don, how are you doing today? Uh, now I'm depressed. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> Sorry. I was doing just well. We've got a, an interesting range of news ahead of you guys. You know, as we we like to kind of pilfer through the latest and greatest in technology news. Uh, but we also have a good interview tied up for this podcast. I'm kind of looking forward to that as well. So it'll be a, it'll be a fun one. Yeah, we'll get to that in a little bit. But it is uh, just to, to let you guys know what's coming up. It's with VendorHawk. And Patrick Lowndes is the, um, is the founder there. And it's basically a way to uh, keep track of all your different SaaS applications. And, you know, as, as a business these days, you've just got so many different subscriptions going on. And, uh you know, there's there's ones you'll find out that you're paying for that you don't even know you're paying for anymore, and, and ones that you're maybe using and they're still on trials. So uh, anyway, VendorHawk is a great way to manage that, uh, and we're not just going to do a, a little sales pitch for them. We're going to really get into why this is, um, you know, something that uh, it's important for, for every business out there to look at. But first, we're going to talk about the news today, so let's go ahead and jump right into that. And, you know, if you weren't depressed enough already by being stuck inside on such a beautiful day, uh, we're going to get into our, our compromise of the week, I guess. That's kind of sure, uh, our, our big story of the week. Our big story of the week. Uh, first uh, first one up here, Trustico revokes 23,000 SSL certificates uh, due to a compromise. So, uh, Don, what's going on there? So, Trustico is a, a company we... We buy SSL certificates from? Uh, I wouldn't say we, but people do. <laughs> we we as, uh, as mankind. Yes. Um, so uh, really weird story, because this one, it kind of broke in, in phases. So uh, this is, is hot off the presses this morning, right? So uh, uh, basically this morning you wake up and there's these news articles out there about Trustico revoking 23,000 certificates. And that is a ton of certificates. Uh, but... It was pretty light on the details. More details have come out as the day has progressed, and so now we've kind of learned a little more. But there's a bit of, of controversy around here. Now, uh, Trustico is not a certificate authority themselves. They are a reseller. So they are basically reselling certificates from Digicert, and it was really Digicert indirectly because uh, Symantec got in some trouble with their certificates. Digicert bought Symantec's assets, and so now... Uh, uh, Trustco is effectively reselling Digicert certificates. So they sent in a request, and they is Trustico, they sent in a request to Digicert this morning saying, we need to revoke all of our customers' certificates. And Digicert said, we only revoke if there's been a compromise. You know, Has there been a breach? If there's a breach, we'll revoke them immediately. That's what we do. Uh, but if there hasn't been a breach, like why, why are you asking me to revoke 23,000 certificates. And Trustico did something really interesting next, and this is what makes this story so so strange, is they proceeded to send an email to the people at Digicert that contained all 23,000 private keys, 
private key is right there in an email that was transmitted over the internet. So because it was sent through non-secure means and because those private keys were exchanged between two companies, that is a breach. And so now Digicert has revoked it. But Trustico never admitted to an original breach. So there's still a lot of confusion as to why why did they want to revoke these certs in the first place? And the the CEO of Trustico has come out and said a few things that didn't quite make sense. Uh, they've started a bit of a a bit of a like a flame war between yeah. the two companies, uh, which has been pretty entertaining because uh, uh, basically Trustico said no, this didn't happen, and so Digicert. Let me see. I think I've actually got it on my screen here. Um, there's uh, a post here in a Google group from Jeremy Rowley, who is I believe he's the CEO of Digicert, uh, but he actually posted some excerpts from that email. He said, here's 10 certificate signing requests uh, that were from that, and you can independently verify these. And people have. They verified that these are, uh, or they were, the legitimate uh, CSRs for several different sites that were issued. Uh, so he's posted them. He said, look, I, I could post 100 or 20,000 more of these yeah. if we need verification here, but the reality is we shouldn't have these, and even Trustico shouldn't have these. The whole point of a certificate is that you create a private key, you generate a certificate signing request, a CA signs off on it, and then they're signing off on your public key that you're then able to generate session keys with for clients that connect. Only you should have your private key. Trustico shouldn't have anybody's private keys. And yet it looks like they had all of their customers' private keys, which is a, a, a breach of conduct. Like, they're not supposed to do that because technically they could decrypt all of their customers' data. So something fishy went down. It will probably come to light over the next few weeks. I'll really be surprised if Trustico is able to resell certificates uh, anytime in the future because this is, is kind of like with DigiNotar a few years ago where – uh, you know, it, it drove them out of business. Yeah, it'll be interesting to kind of uh, keep track on this one because it's really uh, a he said, she said kind of situation right now. And it almost makes you long for the uh, for the future of GDPR where, um, you know, something like this will get uh, thoroughly investigated and we'll be able to actually find out uh, who did what. But um, but hopefully we do. And speaking of things that should be thoroughly investigated and are being um, uh, investigated pretty deeply, uh, Equifax. Equifax something that we've been talking about since last year. Um, and this, this news on, on CNET uh, is talking about how um, Senator, Senator Elizabeth Warren um, from Massachusetts has said that, the, that Equifax is possibly profiting off the data breach. And this really isn't necessarily something new because I know when when the breach first came out, a lot of people said, oh, well, I don't use Equifax. I use XYZ. And they'd say, well, actually, they use Equifax. And, and it turned out so many of the places that uh, that people get that credit information is coming back through Equifax in one way or another. And that's basically what Senator Warren is saying here is that uh, that people are going out and signing up for credit, credit monitoring because of this breach and – in doing so, they're probably signing up with Equifax either directly or indirectly. Yeah, and I was glad CNET went a little bit further because a lot of the news outlets were reporting this and just just doing the quote, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and the quote is basically this right here. Equifax is still making money off their own breach, which is is really bad. You know, we have laws here in the U.S. where, like, if you are a serial killer, you can't turn around and sell your story to the media and make money off it. They don't, they don't allow that. So... Here, she's saying that, hey, Equifax is still making money off their own breach. Now, I thought it was interesting that she said 
Equifax is still making money. Like they've already got evidence of it happening. Now they've never presented that. She uh, she did release a big report just uh, a month ago or so, uh, but I, I've yet to see any conclusive proof. But she has a really good point that uh, somewhere in here. Here's the quote where she says that. Uh, uh, you know, if you decide that you're not going to do business with Equifax again, right, that you might go and sign up for credit monitoring service with somewhere else. But a lot of those places are just reselling Equifax's credit monitoring. So now you are effectively paying Equifax to monitor your credit because Equifax let it get breached. So that type of thing is is pretty shady and not something we want to have uh, going on. But it's I don't know. That that thing just keeps getting worse and worse. Equifax finds more customers were affected and it's it's just it's a total mess. Yeah, and I don't think anyone's implying that Equifax did this on purpose, but it's one of those things that in in hindsight you go, "Well, if I've got a, a sort of pseudo monopoly here, why not do something like this that, hey, I've got some bad PR, but where else are they going to go and, and get their info? Yeah, you know, it, it reminds me of uh, when the housing market collapsed, right? And you had all this stuff, the too big to fail movie and all that about these these bankers that were, were basically intentionally doing these bad loans, and yeah. then they went under. Uh, and how many people went to jail? How many people got in trouble? How many people got penalized? By and large, they didn't get, they didn't get anything, right? Uh, so she's actually pushed forward some legislation, and, and what they're doing, let's see, it's in here as well. Um, they're basically saying, look, if you have a breach like this, you can be penalized at a minimum $100 per affected consumer. And so if you work that out, uh, it's basically, in this case, it would be a $14.3 billion fine assigned to Equifax. That would punish them. Yeah. Although it then goes on to say, like, uh, the fines are capped at 50% of the company's gross revenue, and only half the fine will be redistributed amongst the victims. The other half of the fine goes to, apparently, the government. Um, but let's say it's $100, so we all get 50 bucks. 50 bucks won't even pay for credit service monitoring for a year. It, it, it's not, it, I don't know, it, it's not really benefiting the people that were affected. So that, that needs to be evaluated. That system needs, needs to be reworked. Yeah, and, and I'm sure it will be, but I'm sure it will also take some time. Um, so switching gears now, uh, this article from The Register, uh, I saw this one and I said, you know what, Don is going to get excited about this. Uh, it says, Microsoft to make Ubuntu a first-class guest under Hyper-V. And, and like I said, I knew Don would be excited. I also knew I didn't know, uh, I mean, I knew what all those words meant individually. Um, but, you know, as a group, uh, not so much. So thankfully, you know, we kind of have this relationship here where I'm the average Joe. And, and Don explains things uh, for us, and this can be one where uh, – help me out, Don. You know, I, I had missed this article, um, mostly because it was on the register, which I don't read. Um, <laughs> but but um, at first glance, when I saw the headline, I thought it was an old article because I was like, wait a minute, isn't, isn't Ubuntu already a first-class guest? Ubuntu is created by uh, a company called Canonical, uh, Canonical Linux, and – the canonical company has been tight with Microsoft for a while. The, the Linux subsystem for Windows runs Ubuntu Linux. So they, they've been uh, involved with Microsoft. They have virtual machines that are available inside of Azure. They've, they've been a, a team. But if you start reading the article, what uh, they explain is they're changing the way that uh, Ubuntu operates as a guest inside of Hyper-V, which would also carry over to Azure. Uh, in the past, the screen rendering that was being done 
was being done just with basically like VNC type technology, you know, just simply recreating the screen, which is low performance. So you could run Ubuntu just fine if it was a command line server, but if it had a graphical user interface, it really wasn't all that great as a guest inside of Hyper-V. Well, now they've actually partnered up with a, another company, an open source group, uh, so it's not really a company, but uh, an organization uh, that makes a product called XRDP, which is an open source implementation of remote desktop protocol. And if you've ever compared VNC to RDP, they both let you see the remote screen of a computer, right? So um, from my laptop, I can pull up the screen of my desktop using either protocol. VNC shows me the screen, but it's pretty slow because it's basically like showing me a movie of the screen. It's got to transmit all that over the network. RDP doesn't work that way. RDP is actually rendering individual screen elements and they're doing it on your own computer, so it's much faster. It's much faster. It looks much more crisp. It's, it's a great protocol. Well, it's a Windows protocol. So if you want to remote to a Windows machine, RDP works great. They're actually working to port that over and support it, like officially support it inside of Ubuntu. And that means that when you're running Ubuntu as a guest in Hyper-V, you'll get a very fast screen that you can easily move your mouse in and out of, uh, which you, know, you could do under the previous system. But here, it's actually tracking it as an individual element, and you're actually able to, to really get some great performance out of that. So it's neat to see them put an investment into something like this because with their focus on Linux, they've really focused on the server side, which is almost always command line. Now they're doing a little bit on the GUI side. So if you're running a Windows machine and you need to run a graphical Linux app, you'll be able to do that pretty easily, which is, is neat to see. Again, Microsoft embracing more of the open source technology. Yeah, and that's, that's been a theme that, that we've seen um, more and more, um, you know, just as we've done this show of, of the um, open source in, um, being embraced by Microsoft. I, I was actually looking at an article um, on ZDNet about... Uh, about why they're doing that, and, and that was a much longer read, not really a, a, a news article to talk <laughs> about for, for this show, but uh, but an interesting one to check out. Um, so uh, switching gears now to uh, Inc. Magazine, which we don't normally think of as the big uh, tech news site, and uh, and this is why. Uh, <laughs> this uh, this headline is one of those sensational headlines um, that made me go, wait, wh- what, what happened? What happened to... Uh, uh, to Amazon, but uh, it says Microsoft just won the cloud wars. Um, so I had to look yeah. into that and see why, <laughs> because I remember uh, just a couple weeks ago we looked at the numbers of uh, how each cloud service is doing. Um, what uh, what I guess gave uh, gave them the crown, according to Inc, was um, uh, well they just had uh, at a conference where they talked about this, but um, they acquired the Israeli company Cloudin. I think it's Cloudin, Cloud. Y-N. Cloudine. Cloudine, uh, sure. It's, yeah. uh, it's clearly a startup uh, for $50 million. <laughs> um, but basically, uh, that company uh, helps you um, monitor your investment, basically optimize um, what you're doing so you find out that you're not spending too much or um, not spending enough or uh, something like that. So, you know, apparently that makes that makes them the winner. So it is an odd headline that really doesn't make any sense. But... Um, I do know one one area where people resist the cloud, right? If I have an on-premises server, I can go to HP's website or Dell's website. I can buy a server. Maybe it's $6,000, $10,000, right? You go whole hog, $20,000. That's how much that server costs. And now as long as I run it, I've already paid that. I know what it cost me. But with the cloud, you have variable costs. You pay based on what you use. And so, you know, what if you spin up a virtual machine and then you kind of forget about it? You're paying for it. And so you don't necessarily have a fixed 
cost with the cloud. And a lot of people worry about that because you could make a mistake one day and all of a sudden you consume way more disk space than you ever intended to and now you've got to pay for it. On a physical server, you'd run out of hard drive space and that would be the end of it. In the cloud, there's no limit. It just keeps going and, and filling and filling. Um, that is a, a real fear that, that stops a lot of people from deploying in the cloud. So what Microsoft said was, we're going to take that fear away and that's what the Cloudine or Cloudin, whatever, however you pronounce that, uh, that's what that company did is they said, we've got a system that will monitor your cloud deployments. And if we find servers or resources that aren't being used, that are still there, that are costing you money, we alert you so that you can remove them and we can set in other limits. You know, most, most uh, cloud services like Azure have really limited spending limit functions that it's, it's not... Like the spending limits aren't even a, a function that you can adjust in Azure. You have to open up a support ticket. They don't, they don't give you uh, visibility into that. Uh, and in AWS, they don't really limit your spending. They limit your number of instances. So you have to create spending alerts to let you know when your costs hit a certain level. So by removing that fear, that's one obstacle to people going into the cloud. Now they, uh, they hope to take that obstacle away. Now, does that mean they won the cloud war? No, not, not no, it's over. Not I've, even close. Yeah, I've heard AWS is shutting down. It's it's all over. They just turned it over. Yeah, they it, just wrapped Jeff it up. Bezos is like, oh, that's it. You got it. Yeah, you gotta you gotta <laughs> know when to hold them and when to fold them, and and this is the time. And now Kenny Rogers is the CEO. That's why they've uh, invested all the money into Ring, which they just uh, just bought. You know, which, that way, you know, we don't have that as a news no, article, no. do we? Um, that was a good acquisition, I thought, because yeah, they have the uh, the um, the uh, um, Shoot, the, the, the other bell. products. Oh. Um, the, oh, oh Amazon's know. own things that yeah. are like that? I yeah. mean, we, it, we've talked about the cameras and things for actually package delivery and things like that. So Right, that's the one I'm trying to remember. Yeah. That's called it. Click? Is that the Amazon uh, Click? Might be, yeah, because that's the noise that makes when they Door. Yeah. lock up after taking all your things. So I, I have the Amazon Cloud Cam. I, I like that, but I'm not going to go as far as let them open a door. But with the doorbell one, it's like you ring the doorbell and the camera's right there. It, it, it's an acquisition that makes sense. Yeah, it really does. And, and what, what was so interesting reading the articles about uh, the Ring acquisition is, I guess they were on Shark Tank. I didn't realize. And, and mm. they got one offer from Mr. Wonderful, um, but uh, they didn't accept it. Or for whatever reason, they couldn't come to terms and walked away. So there's a billion dollars that uh, it could have been the big, uh, you know, uh, feather in the cap, I guess you would oh, say. Mr. For, Wonderful. Or for, for uh, Shark Tank in general. Yeah. I don't know if they've ever had anything sell for a billion dollars, but... Yeah. Oh, wow. Can't all be winners. No, they can't. <laughs> Speaking of not winners, uh, next up, uh, we we were just talking the other week about how uh, Microsoft is is kind of closing up the old uh, phone department, and uh, and now there's a new way to close up the phone, um, according to uh, to Microsoft. They they have a uh, Windows 10 phone that folds up. Uh, I don't I don't know. This is actually not actually out yet, right? This right. is this yeah. is something that this is one of those concepts you see like at the auto shows and then it never comes out most likely, but uh you know, it would be kind of cool to to get maybe a bigger screen, maybe something the size of an iPad mini would be able to close that and, and put it in your pocket or purse, but uh yeah, the um uh, the Windows 10 phone which you gotta hope runs Android then, right? <laughs> you know, um for the last like 3 years, a couple of vendors have been teasing these foldable phones. Uh, Microsoft did it. Uh, Samsung did it. Actually, Samsung did it again this year. Simpsons been, did it. Uh, the Simpsons, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, all of them market these foldable phones. And I don't know. I, I could see 
I could see where it would be nice to have a big phone, but you fold it in half. But I, I, I just think, like, if you fold it in half, then it's going to be twice as thick. And that isn't really any more convenient to me. Um, but what I thought was interesting was that we just reported a few weeks ago that Microsoft was finally killing Windows Phone. And they even came out and said it, like, uh, you know, Windows Phone 10 is dead. We're, we're not going to advance that any further. But it, it looks like they were being really, really literal with what they said. And while Windows Phone 10 might be dead, we might see a Windows Phone 11, and then it comes back. I don't know why uh, they keep trying. They keep failing. But, you know, Abraham Lincoln failed a bunch, and then he became president. But, again, this could just be the hardware because it's it's a patent that they own as well. So, yeah. you know, it, it, while we're seeing it uh, in this form factor as a, as a surface um, – it looks like a surface, but a phone. Mm-hmm. I mean, it it could easily be where they're showing off this this demo of what it can be, um, and then licensing that that uh, that technology. Yeah. Uh, I, there was another article that I, I didn't think was notable enough to throw in, but uh, uh, where Microsoft was starting to sell the Windows Mobile phones again, uh, like the Nokia Seven and a few others, in their stores on campus. <laughs> so if you actually go to Microsoft headquarters up in Redmond, Washington, uh, you can go in there and buy a Windows phone right now. Um, and people are trying to figure out, like, did they just have a bunch of extra inventory laying around? And they said, well, we've got to sell it. Maybe a Microsoft employee will buy it. Yeah, and uh, they're basically Zooms at that point. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Zoom. Get your hands on this Zoom. Nice. So, uh, yeah, so they, they started kind of pushing that, and then this leak came out. And I just hope that nobody over there at Microsoft starts seeing these, like, little articles leak out. And go, oh, look, there's actually demand for this product. Let's bring <laughs> it back again because – it's just not working. There's so much buzz. <laughs> uh, well, and and a lot of these, uh, we've got a lot of mobile articles, actually, and that's because the Mobile World Congress uh, mm-hmm. took place. Where, that's in Europe, right? In Spain? Or is uh, I think it was in Barcelona, yeah. yeah. Um, so that takes place every year, and we always get this. Uh, it's basically like CES uh, for mobile. So we see all these foldable phones and gadgets and things that uh, fit in our pockets. Uh, and so that... Uh, well, well, the last one, I think, kind of came out of that, but uh, it, it brings us a nice segue to the next article uh, from Mac Rumors, stating that the iPhone and Android duopoly nears its peak with an estimated 99.9% market share last year. So, yeah, that uh, that 0.1% uh, is what uh, Microsoft seems to be going after with that folding phone. Uh, so, so look for that uh, in none of your friends' hands soon. Uh, and I love the picture on this article where with the BlackBerry, like kind of hiding back there in the back. Like, is the BlackBerry even that other point one? I would think it's it's uh, the one in the picture actually ships with Android on it. Oh, okay. So that so that, that's what that is. All right, that and, makes sense. And there were a couple interesting things about this announcement. I'm you know the main one being ninety nine point nine percent. I mean that is that's pretty devastating to any of these other OSs. And and if you don't think there's other OSs. There's tons of feature phones that run proprietary OSs. There are um, the Sailfish phones that are out there. Um, the oh, There was um, uh, Samsung had their own little operating system for a little while. They still do. I can't remember its name, though, because that's how awesome it is. Uh, mm-hmm. So there were a couple of other operating systems that have been floated around, and they're just not even making a dent in the market. BlackBerry OS, effectively gone 0.1%. I mean, that is such a small number. Uh, that not even one out of 100 of your friends has a different operating system, or one out of 100 of your enemies, for that matter. Um, But the other thing that was really neat was if you look at how it was broken down, because in in my world, I think that I usually seem to run to about half and half. Half the people have iOS devices, the other half have Android devices. But it's far more lopsided than that, and they put the numbers in here 
for uh, for 2017. Uh, actually, they have something where it's in this. Yeah, it's, it was in that chart up um, above. The, oh. This is yeah the operating system of 2017 on the left. But oh, got it. It. Uh, I mean, I think we're looking at that globally, and and I think it's something in the U.S. Maybe we see a little bit more fifty-fifty, where I feel like in in other markets, you know, it it's it's obviously a lot less expensive potentially yeah. for an Android phone. Um, so in, in emerging markets, I think we see more of that, whereas uh, yeah. you know we see those thousand-dollar iPhone Xs. So the the Android uh, OS actually accounted for eighty-five point nine percent of the market. That's Android alone, eighty-five point nine percent, with iOS clocking in at just fourteen percent of the market. Uh, in twenty sixteen, iOS had fourteen point four percent, so it actually declined the the total number of devices. Or uh, the the argument from Apple is. It didn't decline. It might have even grown. It's the amount of Android phones increased. But if you look at the raw numbers, they didn't increase that much. There were 1.268 million in 2016, 1.32 million in 2017. So uh, anyhow, huge market for Android on there. And it's because you can, like any vendor can put Android on their phone if they just run through Google's little checks and they've got it. And there's tons of vendors that are doing it. But, you know, the iPhone, it's... It, it's got a larger market share. You, you must be right, Peter, like in the U.S. market. I think so, yeah. And and I don't think it's a larger necessarily market in the U.S. It it feels like 50-50 when you just walk around an office and, and poll people. But, um, yeah, I think uh, I, I think just, you know, the the cost to, to entry to buy an iPhone compared to the minimum cost. I mean, you see the Android phones on mm-hmm. commercials where they're, you know, c- come in and sign a contract and, you know, Four free Android phones. You're not going to see that with the with yeah. The iPhone. You know the, the iPhone eight, the iPhone ten. They're eight hundred dollars, a thousand dollars. They're a lot of money. Uh, although there's a rumor, not not news, so I probably shouldn't talk about it. But uh, there's supposed to be an Apple announcement in in, in March of this month, yeah. right? Uh, that they're doing a refresh of some things. Supposedly they're going to refresh some MacBook Pros. They're going to refresh um, the iPad Pro. Supposedly. I hope they refresh the Mac Mini, but who knows if they will or not. Um, but they're rumored to be releasing a new iPhone SE, which is the low-cost iPhone, the mm-hmm. smaller one. And uh, and that's what's supposed to help. But they haven't done that in, in two years. And even two years ago, it was just a minor refresh, not a major. So they like Apple really doesn't care about the cheap phone market. They, they just focus yeah. on the expensive and keep going. Well, Don, what could be the big announcement uh, from Apple this year? Uh, which it probably isn't because this is a, a patent that was just <laughs> applied for and, and granted. Um, but this is an article on Tech, Tech Republic, and and in what seems like a, a uh, just direct breach of the uh, the copyright from from Microsoft with their Surface uh, Phone foldy thing. Uh, we've got the Apple patent hints at a dual screen MacBook slash iPad or I guess or iPad. Um, so if we, if we scroll there all the way down there, we've got the drawing and basically it looks like uh, two iPads coming together, which is essentially what I've got in, in front of me with the MacBook Pro, which I know it's got the the iPad uh, kind of uh, guts basically under this right. little touch bar. But I yeah, I made the point to Don that I don't think uh, yeah, I don't think it's gonna work because I assume that Apple won't make either of them touchscreens. Yeah. They just won't be able to interact with your computer at all. You know, when they announced the touch bar, um, I, I was surprised. Like, why why bother doing a touch bar? Why not do a whole touch screen and stick a bar at the bottom of the screen? And now you can touch it. But now you have the advantage of being able to touch the whole rest of the screen. It doesn't cost that much. It just makes sense. But Apple, they, they want to think different, right? So they, they want to do different than everybody else. They want to just copy Um which there's a lot of people that are copying Apple, so apparently it's working for them. Um, 
On this one, I think they might have finally found a way to differentiate. And it's going to require a couple of technologies to come together. If you read the patent, the patent is pretty vague, as patents usually are. The more vague they are, the easier it is for them to sue other people. So um, <laughs> what it doesn't tell, if you look at this, so that the top screen uh, would be one big touchscreen. So that's just like a, a laptop from any vendor other than Apple. And then the bottom screen is where things get a little bit confusing, right? Because it's got a little divider here. So you could interpret this as the top part here just being the touch bar and then the bottom part being a regular keyboard, right? That would be in line with, like, Peter's laptop right now. Mm. But they never specifically say the bottom part is a keyboard, and the picture doesn't show a keyboard either. And you could argue the picture doesn't show a power button. That doesn't mean it's going to turn itself on. Um, but the... The theory is this whole part might be a touchscreen. And then instead of a physical keyboard, it may be a keyboard that's basically just drawn, uh, you know, as, a, as an image right there in that bottom drawer. And if that's the case, that's kind of neat, right? It's, it's neat in that you could have anything on there, and you know, maybe you're playing a game, so you fold the thing in half, and one person's playing on one screen, and the other person's playing on the other screen. Or uh, if you're browsing the web, you could actually leverage both screens because you don't really need a keyboard for that. But I know like touching on, or typing on a touchscreen is not very pleasant. Um, there was another patent that App Apple was working on for a haptic feedback where you could run your fingers across a pane of glass and actually feel little edges as if they were keys. So they could create a, a keyboard that was flat, but that felt like it had ridges. If they figured that out, this could be like one of the most revolutionary devices that have been out in a long time. And I make fun of Apple for saying crap like that all the time, but it yeah, would be. that would. That would change everything. That but they'd have to get a lot of different things to come together for that to happen. Yeah, well, think about, uh, you know, as you as you travel, if you're bilingual, all of a sudden you can just swap out the keyboard to be a, a Chinese character keyboard or, Absolutely. or whatever. And, and it, just the possibilities uh, are limitless. With Hadn't even like thought that. of that. Yeah, a, I did. Yeah. Um, and I will say, though, you make fun of it, but I use this touch bar multiple times a day. Um, when I turn the computer on in the morning and uh, and when I turn it off at the end of the day. So uh, those are the two times that I use the touchpad. Well, you know, so, so I, I just got this laptop last week, uh, and I, I have more laptops than I should, but, uh, but this one's a MacBook Pro, and I specifically bought it without the touch bar because I use the escape key constantly. Uh, I know you don't use Vim, which is a, a Unix text editor. I use Vim all the time. And the escape key is how I transition between modes in Vim. So it, it's something I use always. And having it on the touch bar would be super annoying. So I, I bought it without it. And I didn't realize this when I bought it. Uh, I only realized it just a couple of days ago that when you get it without a touch bar, you save 300 bucks, right? And you get these, these buttons across the top. Great. But if you get it without a touch bar, you have four USB-C ports in yours. I do. I've only got two USB-C ports in mine. So apparently by removing the touch bar, they run out of room to put in two more USB-C ports? I don't know. Yeah, you <laughs> I don't, took I don't out all that. those iPad parts there. And, and I don't know. It's strange, and I don't know how these companies make decisions like this, but they did. 
No, they're trying to they're trying to push you. I guess towards so. uh, you want towards that this. touch ball. Yeah, and you do, you do. Uh, it's pretty exciting. I I oftentimes hit the Siri button accidentally throughout the day. Good old Siri. Um, so there's that that as well. Uh, all right, next up uh, on this is on Uber Gizmo, which is I assume a joint venture between Uber and Gizmodo. Um, <laughs> this article says Linux on Galaxy brings desktop software to Samsung smartphones. And when I saw this, I, I said, "It done what?" Oh, is this is this news? This, I I thought we talked about uh, Linux on mobile before, and so yep. this is maybe just a, a little bit different, or we're actually running different kind of apps on it, on this version. It's a couple of different things going on at the same time. So um, Samsung, they have they have been teasing me because I I have this I have this desire to merge my phone and my laptop. You know, like just combine these two things and, and do it right. Some company's got to be able to figure it out. Uh, one day we'll we'll get there. Um, Last year, when the Galaxy S8s came out, they released the Dex Station, and it was a little dock. Uh, and I, I have a Galaxy S8. I have a Dex Station. It, I keep it at home. And you can stick your phone in the station, and if you have a monitor and a keyboard and a mouse hooked up, your phone blows up to fill the screen, and now you can use it as a computer. And so this year, they've announced the Dex, Dex Pad? Yes, Dex Pad. Which at first I thought was going to be a tablet, stick your phone in it, ooh, right? Uh, Don's <laughs> dreams come true. Yeah. Uh, instead, it's just a stupid block. And you stick the phone on it, and it's just like the deck station from last year. You connect a monitor, a keyboard, and mouse. But a few months ago, Samsung announced that they were going to make it where you could run a full-blown Linux installation, basically like virtualized, on top of the phone. So the phones run Android. And you can do a lot of stuff in Android, but if you're not rooted... You're limited to certain things. There's only so many packages you can install, and the Android kernel, while it is based on Android, I mean, based on uh, Linux, it's not actually Linux. It's it's been messed with. So to be able to run a true Linux distro like Ubuntu or Fedora, CentOS, whatever Debian, to be able to run that, you could now have a full environment where you're able to run the applications you're used to, to have root access inside of that environment and not mess up your phone or have to worry about your phone getting broken into. So they announced that about a month ago. They had a big sign-up for the beta program. I, I signed up, but they never offered it to anybody. Uh, and so now, uh, as part of the Mobile World Congress, they've announced that uh, they're combining the two, DeX and the Linux on Android, so that you can plug into a DeX station with your, your phone, and instead of just stretching the Android desktop to fill the screen, it could launch your Linux container. And so now you've got a full Linux distro running on your computer all tied to your phone. And uh, I guess you could buy a bunch of Dex docs, Dex pads, and stick them everywhere you go and drop your phone in and have a computer that follows you. That part I'm not really sold on. We'll have to see what happens. But, um, but it kind of combines those two things, and we'll, we'll see if they release it. Uh, I don't know. Um, they did send out a survey, and one of the survey questions was, how much would you be willing to pay to run a Linux environment on top of Android? And so that makes me think it's going to be a paid feature. We'll, we'll have to see if, if that actually happens. Um, I, I'd be willing to pay for it, uh, even though it's somewhat of a novelty. I'd, I'd pay a, have, a bit. You have many times before. I've There's bought, a graveyard of, of Don Phones that plug into computers. Uh, I back should in create the back. some kind of like memorial wall. <laughs> should be the museum. The... There's, you know, one of those roadside attraction museums that people will. Oh, we'll drive down the road. Let's yeah. see the largest collection of failed phone computer hybrids. Yeah, let's take let's uh, take a look. Yeah, yeah he's got all four. Uh, 
All right. So, well, <laughs> a lot of other news coming out from the Mobile World Congress. Um, so let's just go down this great rundown that The Verge uh, put together, uh, kind of a best and worst. So um, let's start at the top. The, the best being the demise of screen bezels. I know that's another one of your your favorites, Don, is how the 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 edges just kind of wrap around and you have to kind of turn it to see the last yeah. line of the the sentence so that's a big I'm, one for you i'm okay with reducing the screen bezel like an edge-to-edge phone i'm fine with that it's the curve going edges. beyond the edge yeah that's what's really annoying me because the curve adds nothing yeah. right there really is no value it makes the screen more fragile so they're easier to break and you can't put a screen protector on them because the curve makes it where it won't stick and even if you buy the curved ones unless you get them aligned perfectly they're they're not going to stay in place so I am so over curved edged phones that I, I really I want to make a I want to take a stand on this one and say that's it I am not buying a phone with a curved edge, but if MWC is any indicator, every phone has yeah. curved edges now even the cheap ones and that is super annoying. This is like when Apple made gray text on a white background popular. That's so annoying and it's everywhere. Well, hell, this article that I'm looking at right now <laughs> that's gray text on a white background. If if any of you guys ever go to advertising or marketing school or whatever, they teach you about contrast and how it's important. And here it's just a trend that's ignored. Um, so curved screens, you want it. Apparently, whether you like it or not, you want it. I'm surprised you don't have one on the on the new MacBook. Um, yeah. <laughs> next, as we scroll down the article, we've got the Samsung Galaxy S9 and S9 Plus, which we talked about last week. If you like the Galaxy uh, S8 and you don't like uh, money, uh, go ahead and, and upgrade um, because then you'll have the new one and less money. Um, so that'll work out. And then uh, we've got <laughs> apparently below that, uh, Nokia is uh, launching a competitor to the Jitterbug uh, that comes in yellow. So you can find it on the couch and All right. black. Oh, is there I more? think you missed the point on this one. <laughs> I think I did. Go I, ahead. This was like... This was the most exciting news to come out of MWC for me and also <laughs> the most depressing at the same time. The movie The Matrix. Do you remember The Matrix? I do. Yeah. All right. When the movie The Matrix came out, I saw it, and Neo and Morpheus, they had a phone where you clicked oh, a button and it down. slid out, yeah. and it was awesome. I wanted it. I said, I'm going to get that phone. I'm going to pay whatever I can. I, I was in – I don't know. How old was I when that happened? I was – I was out of college at yeah, that point, so I in your 20s. I made money. So, so it was it was something that should have been attainable for me, right? So, um, I started searching for it, and it was a model that was only sold in Europe. And not only that, it wasn't even sold in Europe anymore. So here's this awesome phone, this great marketing opportunity, and you couldn't get it. It was like worst product placement ever. But I, I wanted that phone. And here in the U.S., we got this cheap, crappy version that had a little spring in it that always fell apart. And, oh, I, I owned that one. Uh, but, you know, you just couldn't get it. So they announced uh, that, you know, um, Nokia, the, the Nokia brand was sold to HMD Global. So it's a different company that makes them. And HMD is just looking at their library and saying, wait a minute, the Matrix phone, that thing was awesome. So they said they were going to re-release the Matrix phone. I got excited about that. And then the depressing part comes in, which is um, they didn't bother putting like Android or anything on there. So it's running a feature phone OS. So if you need a phone with no apps, you've got that. Um, You have uh, a European release again, so it likely won't work here in the U.S. Uh, And also they... They ran with the nickname of the phone because the nickname was the banana phone, and so they're releasing a yellow version of it. But if you ignore that yellow version and just look at this black one, 
Man, that is a, a flashback to the Matrix. Uh, supposedly, it is going to be a whopping $97. The Verge has it at 100 but I, I heard $97. Um, for that much, I'd buy one even if it didn't work. Is that the year the Matrix came out? Ninety-seven. Uh, no, it had to be like, well, I, I bet know, it, it was is. Like 95 or something. No. I don't know. I, yeah, we'll have to look. They want the IMDb that one. I don't remember when the Matrix came out, but um, yeah, that, that phone. It, it it's old. You know, back then we didn't have Android and iOS didn't exist, and feature phones were the normal thing. The Motorola Razor wasn't even out yet. Uh, March ninety nine, nineteen ninety nine. All right, so eighteen years ago. Yeah, so like I said, uh, the Nokia Jitterbug uh, is <laughs> being released now. You're gonna you're gonna make fun of me um, because all the stuff behind here, but. Didn't, didn't Star Trek have a phone where it popped down too? Um, it flipped out, right? It flipped like out. It, it flipped the communicator would would flip yeah, open. it would just flip open like a like yeah. A flip and phone. I I know for a while there were a couple of companies making phone cases that did that. I don't know if they ever actually made a phone like that. Yeah, I'm not sure. Makes you wonder why not? That would be a good cross yeah, marketing seriously. type thing. Yeah, there's a, um, but but you're right. If you're going to do something like that, put the latest technology in it at least. And why and, not? then actually sell some. Um, so continuing down this article here, we've got uh, awesome little Chromebooks from Lenovo. Lots of Chromebooks coming out right yeah. now. Yeah, definitely. And then um, this one that, that caught our eye, this is, uh, we were talking about, well, it'll get to, the, the next thing down in this article is about the iPhone X copycats in terms of the notch on top where you put the camera and the, uh, and the speaker and how you... Uh, reconcile that with the fact that you want as much screen real estate as possible so you can get those sweet, sweet curved edges uh, that Don loves. So uh, this phone on top, Vivo's Apex concept phone, well, honestly, I don't know why they did it because the image doesn't even look like it goes all the way to the top of the well, screen. Yeah. But you've got a uh, the camera just uh, just pops out of the top there, so you just use it when you need it, which is actually cool from a security perspective of knowing that you know I can push this down and no longer be... Um, you know, monitored by the NSA. So we have to remember who Vivo is, right? So here in the U.S., you you don't have a Vivo phone. Uh, in fact, even in Europe, you're you're not going to have a Vivo phone. Um, in China, I'm not sure if they're actually selling phones, but they create concept phones and and they try and create cutting edge features. And there's actually three different features nested in this one phone. If you look at the front of a modern phone, um, and yours is newer than mine, Peter, but like if I look at my phone, what uh, wherever my phone is here, what what breaks up the glass on your phone? So there's there's the earpiece where I can hear mm-hmm. uh, you know people talk to me. There's the camera, yep. right? Got to have that. Some light sensors and all that. Um, and that that's about all that's left that breaks up the front of your phone. So Vivo was saying, look, if we could just get that stuff off the phone, off the front of the phone at least, then we can have something that works. So they said, what if we took the camera and put it in the phone so it pops out? And that's what this little knob is up here. Is the camera is popping out of the top of the phone and then you just push it back down when you're not using it. Hey, you're not using your camera 99% of the time, so you just pop it out when you need it. Now, in that small form factor, it is probably like a 2 megapixel camera. It's probably pretty low quality, yeah. uh, but it does get it off the face of the phone, right? They also have a fingerprint reader that is under the glass. So you hold your thumb on the glass and it does the, the fingerprint read right there. They were the first people to have a production phone that did that. I hear it doesn't work the greatest, but, you know, these technologies got to come from somewhere. But the other thing, and they can't show this in the picture, there's no earpiece. Did you see how they were, how you would hear on this phone? No. It's a new technology. There is literally no earpiece on this phone. The phone vibrates 
to a make phone the conduction? phone the speaker. Oh, yeah, you ever see those things you stick on like a glass window yeah. and it and it vibrates? I, and I had those headphones when they first came out that were the bone conduction, oh, so you could yeah. you could go out and, and run or, or something and, and not have to worry about not hearing cars honking at you um, because it sat in front of your ear there and just it vibrated against the, I, the bone. I never in your used head. that. How, how did it work? It, it was not good. Hit, I mean, I could I could hear better when I pulled it back and put the little thing right over my ear. <laughs> so it was it wasn't that great. It wasn't perfect. But right. that that was you know first gen. Of that. Well, that's the technology this uses. So the the I, I don't know if it's the whole front of the phone or just a portion of it that it becomes a speaker. So it, it's almost Johnny Ives' dream of a phone with no open ports. If it has wireless charging in it, this phone could literally have no openings. Yeah. Um, if they went that way, I, I don't know if they will. But uh, it was neat. It, it's a concept phone. This one won't be sold. And I imagine that's why the screen does not go all the way to the edge. They're just trying to say... Look, we got it off the front. Now we just have to figure out how to squeeze that screen right in there, and now you got a phone that is one big screen. That's what you can look forward to at next year's uh, Mobile World Congress in Barcelona. Um, last couple, yeah, we talked about the rise in the iPhone X copycat uh, with with a notch on top, um, you know, and it's bad. I mean, they're yeah, just kind of, this is ASUS. Who I I like ASUS. I like ASUS products, but they're totally ripping off the iPhone 10 on this but, one. But I guess in that case, we can all get our uh, wallpapers from the same. Um, you know, website and, and they'll all fit on all of our phones. So that'll be great. Um, the headphone jack becoming more of a rarity. We all kind of knew that that everyone would follow suit after Apple does this and, and makes everyone go out and um, buy new new headsets, except for, um, you know, most phones are going to be using USB-C. Uh, so you can get the dongle. Yeah, but we'll be stuck with uh, with Lightning uh, here in the U.S. at least. And I think in Europe, don't they have USB-C on the iPhones? Because didn't they mandate all phones have to be USB? I don't know. I, I remember that mandate, yeah. and I, I, I don't know. I don't know if that updated from the huh. you know micro USB to USB-C now, but I would imagine it has. But anyhow, uh, not for me. <laughs> uh, so next up, uh, Samsung's AR emojis. So you got to compete with the AR emojis of, of the uh, iPhone X there. Uh, and this uh, looks more like the stuff of your dreams, or of your nightmares, I should say, that uh, apparently Ellen is on your phone. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, emojis and uh, augmented reality. I mean, augmented reality will eventually be a, a thing that is useful to us. But uh, as far as emojis and stickers and all that stuff is concerned, I wish that would just go away. They're pointless. Um, you know, they just, they're really useless. And, and they're they're slowly making our planet dumber. So I, I think we should recognize them as the threat they are and uh, and kill them off. <laughs> I'm sorry, Don, but once you've tried the Animojis on my iPhone, you will change your mind. Yeah. Uh, and last up, LG's Cynical V30 rebadge. So basically this is similar to kind of what we talked about with Samsung, that that they're just kind of uh, putting a new number on their, their phone, maybe updating some RAM, I think it said, and... Uh, and calling that a new phone. Yeah, LG, you know, they've been making some really fancy phones the last few years, big flagships, and then they finally announced, hey, we're not going to do a flagship phone every year anymore. Uh, we might go two years in between phones. They said an indeterminate time, so they, they still could do every year. So uh, there wasn't a great big LG announcement like we've seen in the past. Uh, there are some people, like I know my brother-in-law, he loves LG phones. Uh, I've just never been able to bring myself to get an LG phone. Um, but they they kind of operate in that space. So this year, they're kind of rebranding some phones. Not a lot of new stuff coming out, but they, they still wanted to announce something. All right, well, this last story here uh, from the Mobile World Congress uh, over on TechCrunch, um, 
this this kind of talks about what we were just saying with that phone that has the pop up uh, camera on top. Uh, Huawei uh, ran out of bezel space on its new laptop, so it put the camera in the keyboard. Um, which you know, you go, okay, well that makes sense. We've got space there, but let's think about first of all the viewing angle um, from that low, uh, which is horrible uh, and yeah, just just barely worse than the normal viewing ang- angle on a on a laptop's webcam. But couple that with the fact that if you're on a meeting or something, you probably got your hands right there typing, maybe taking notes or um, you know doing whatever you're doing during that meeting, and you're basically just covering up your whole yeah. camera. At that point. For, for those of you that are listening, instead of watching, um, what they did is they basically took one of the function keys out, or they probably took some other key off on the right side, like a power button or something. Who needs that? You took your escape um, key and. They basically added a button in between the F6 and F7 key. So, see, Apple can't possibly compete with this because uh, they have a touch bar. So, uh, <laughs> in between F6 and F7, there's this other button, and it pops up, and the webcam is actually right there. So, it's not on the screen, which is nice. So, now the screen can expand to fill that whole space. But webcams are already in a bad spot on a laptop, you know, being on the top of that screen, because you always have your screen angled back a little bit. So whoever you're talking to is looking up your nose while you talk. It's just not a a good arrangement. And having it in this key is even worse. And the the reporter from TechCrunch, they they showed, like, here, he's actually using it. And see how giant his hands are? Because you put your hands (laughs) on the keyboard, right? That's that's where they go. So bad. Uh, It's just not great placement for a camera. But this is... I don't think they're going to release this as like a an official product. It, it's probably again another one of those like experiments. We're going to try and put the camera somewhere else, but it's just not a, a good one. I I already don't use the camera built into my laptop. I'll stick a Logitech webcam on the top of it just because you can adjust the angle. That that's the way to to, to go about it. If if you do this like professionally, sure. And what what's uh, what's cool about it is it actually depresses down so you can hide. Um, the camera in basically it looks like a button then I think on top um, so so that's a cool feature to be able to hide it away but I don't think uh, yeah if you want to scroll back up Don you can kind of see uh, on the on the picture of it there how you can see how it would press down um, for those of you watching and, and um, be able to kind of look like a, a button there which is which yeah. is pretty cool but um, you know but when you're not using it, it's out of the way, and that's great. But when you actually need to use it is when you want it to work. I guess so. it would have to fold down because otherwise you couldn't close it. Oh, that's it a good would just point. poke a hole through the monitor. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> although, you know, now that now that I'm thinking about it, like if this is something that inserts in, you remember the uh, PCMCIA cards or the uh-huh. PC cards that laptops used to have? They yeah. were credit cards that you pop them out. Couldn't they just make like a webcam like that that pops out of a slot on the side of the laptop and then you just stick it on top of the monitor? Oh, yeah. So, or, yeah, like you hide the stylus on the... Now, uh, now I got to file a patent. Or, yeah, there uh, you go. Because oh, otherwise, man. they're going to steal. MWC next year, they'll unveil this new card well, cam. No. I'll be like, "Damn it, that was mine." Well, I mean, honestly, <laughs> I, I think what's what's going to happen. I, I would hope, and you know, this would solve what we're talking about in phones as well. Is you know, think about one-way glass or with tint. They should be able to put the camera behind the glass and uh, and possibly see through the screen. You know, I think that could be somewhere that we're going eventually. So the camera is kind of behind your display. Yeah, there was um, there was somebody who did that a proof of concept uh, a few months ago. I can't remember which vendor it was, yeah. uh, but the problem was you couldn't get any like high quality, and lighting was an issue because you're basically shooting through mm-hmm. lights. So it, like in in a dark environment, you just couldn't film anything. Yeah, I'm I'm sure with the types of monitors we have now, it would kind of be limited. But you know, as that technology changes or evolves, uh, I'm sure that will be fantastic. They could just put a notch in. 
You know, yeah. a little, little notch. That's right true. On top That's a great idea. I wonder why no one saw that. that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or everyone has apparently. Well, speaking of uh, people uh, with the camera on their laptop looking up at the ceiling, uh, we're good enough <laughs> to be joined now by Patrick Lowndes, who we've been talking uh, talking about um, from Vendorhawk. We actually uh, recorded this interview a little bit earlier, but uh, as I told you, Vendorhawk uh, is uh, someone that helps you kind of manage all the different SaaS applications uh, that you have in your company, but. Uh, why should I explain this? I will let uh, Patrick explain this to you. So let's go ahead and take a moment and watch that interview with Patrick, and then we'll come back on the IT Pro TV podcast. Some of our, our leadership team had an opportunity to go out to the Saster Conference uh, in San Francisco, right, recently, and uh, I met up with a lot of great people, and uh, they, they came back and said, we've got to talk to this guy. And this is Patrick Lowndes, who uh, is the, um, uh, I guess he's the, are you the CIO, CEO, founder, co-founder? Uh- See, a founder and CEO, you got it. Founder and CEO, okay, a vendor hawk. And um, I'll let you explain uh, what vendor hawk is, but uh, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today, and I'd uh, love to learn a little bit more about what you guys do. Yeah, well, when I met Tim and I saw your shirts with IT, you know, IT Pro TV, I said, I got to talk to these guys. So, yeah, we, we help uh, IT leaders, but also finance leaders figure out all the software vendors in their business and then give them some ways to actually track all the licenses, renewals, costs, ownership, um, essentially all the business mess of dealing with lots of SaaS vendors. Um, you know, and so we, it, it's a pretty slick a- application. I, I know I'm biased, but um, it's it's a problem I'm sure many people listening are probably have dealt with in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, I'm sure. And, and this is something that you came up with as uh, as a need that you saw when you were working at your previous company, right? Can you talk about kind of what led to this, uh, what problems you saw and and how you guys realized you could fix it? Yeah, no, excellent. I was, yeah, I was actually working for a software company for years, just selling a, a, our software product. And I, I realized, it kind of dawned on me, one day I found myself helping, I was negotiating with a customer and we just signed a deal and I was helping them uh, think about when our, our contract was gonna renew. And I was actually giving them some pointers and tips on how to stay out in front of that. And it kind of dawned on me, they're probably buying lots of software. How are they keeping track of all these auto renewal dates and all these licenses? And and what I did is, um, you know, very quickly, I some advisors of mine just said, hey, start, start interviewing. So I, I interviewed a bunch of IT leaders, a bunch of finance leaders. And before I know it, the, you know, the question, what's challenging about having lots of SaaS and software in the business? There's a number of answers that came up, and the top two were probably, I don't even know all the software that I have, and I barely know who owns it or how well it's being used, right? And so when, if you don't know those things, you can't actually make a good decision about what you really need and what you should spend money on. So that those are the questions that kind of birthed the business about two and a half years ago. Yeah, it's really funny that this came up today. We, we actually had... Uh, a meeting today where we had um, we're, we're doing some auditing internally, and we were going around saying, "Okay, uh, here's a list of softwares. Have you ever heard of this one? Have you heard of this one?" We're trying to figure out which department is doing what because you know over over three or four years as a company grows, uh, you know originally maybe just the C- CEO was was buying these things, and then as you start to hire additional people, there's someone in charge of marketing, someone in charge of sales, they're buying things as well. Maybe these two things are competing. Maybe we haven't used one of these in two years, but uh, when when you start to look at some of the costs, they start to add up, and uh, I can definitely see this as, as being something that. So you, you said this this is more um, the financial person is looking at, or people in the C level, or, yeah. or okay, how, how does that work exactly? 
You know, we, yeah. In fact, we have, um, you know, we have a. I wrote a white paper called "The Growth Stages of Technology Vendor Management." Um, it's completely free on our website. You should download it if you're interested. But it's basically looking at startups, small companies, mid-size, all the way up to large enterprises, and really the the onus of who should actually own software vendor management it shifts quite a bit like you alluded to. And so it starts out with like the CTO and kind of every man for themselves until you really get the first IT person, call it around 50 employees or 75 employees in a business. And then really it's a, we usually work with a combination of an IT uh, operations leader, um, you know, to massive companies, it's even down to the level of IT procurement or even an asset manager. And then over time, it switches from more of a controller VP of finance in that mid-sized company all the way over into a procurement team. You know, in the largest of companies, it could even be like a software asset management team trying to work with IT procurement. So we, we kind of run the gamut. And I, I like to say our best customers, uh, it, it's an IT person working in close uh, collaboration with somebody in finance. All right. Well, you said something. Um, we're talking about procurement there. You said something before we um, started talking on the air about uh, negotiating with SaaS uh, companies, and I, I think that's something that a lot of people maybe miss. You 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 go to these pages. Sometimes you see pricing. Sometimes you don't. But uh, you know, you take that for uh, for the gospel. That that's the price, and that, and that's what I'm going to have to pay. But uh, you actually mentioned you have some some tips or or, or ways to negotiate and and get some better rates. Yeah, yeah. We actually, um, I think one of the com most commonly overlooked things is um, the, the concept of I'm going to buy one license for this, call it $15 a month for box, let's just say. Um, but almost every vendor, when you have enough buying power, enough seats that you're going to purchase, you can really start to get into that more of an enterprise level agreement and, you know, ELA, for those of you who've probably done many of them, you, you know what I'm talking about. But if you're, you know, in smaller companies or you're not used to buying, I think one of the common challenges is um, understanding what levers you have to pull. Uh, and so one of the best things is start your research early. If you, if you need something right away and it's kind of like a last minute urgent, like you're not in a great negotiating standpoint with that vendor because um, they have all the power. You need it. You're reliant. So if, as much as possible, think about what you think your needs might be. And the great thing is you start to have these conversations with vendors um, the pricing page is going to say one thing, but like Salesforce is a great example. You look at what they 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 charge, and you get on the phone with them, and they they know that they've got a lot of power. But you can also, as the buyer, step up at just the right time. For instance, their fiscal year end of January 31st, which is when I actually struck my renewal with them just a couple weeks ago, <laughs> and you wait till the moment of opportunity. And you got to think to yourself, you know, when you're talking with a salesperson, you know, what do they care about? What motivates them? And do they really care if I get an extra, you know, 100,000 API calls, right? So you got to start to think about what matters or if it's a marketing tool, you know, can I get more contacts? Like what, 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 what really are the drivers there? So besides just the click and buy things with a credit card, which there's tons of that, when you start to think about buying for the company, there's a lot of levers you can pull, even to the level of like, you know, when am I going to make the payment? Like, do I have to do annual? Can I do uh, quarterly or monthly, right? And so there's all sorts of ways that you could really get creative when you're negotiating. But you know, if you haven't done the deals, I, I would encourage you a think ahead and b start to imagine the levers. You know, we've got some different uh, insights about what those levers are on our on our blog. But th those are a few tidbits. 
Now, do you guys focus just on the the paid software? Because I know we've bumped into challenges with with free software that uh, software as a service, that the whole SaaS model, it's a double-edged sword, right? That it's really easy to stand up the software because it's all hosted in the cloud. It's all remote, you know, typically. Um, yep. But it's also kind of a pain because it's so easy. For example, we, we decided to deploy uh, Slack as our primary communication, right? So we were a paid subscriber with Slack. When we went to set up our first Slack account, we were surprised to find that the name was already taken. And we said, well, we're not using Slack. And then it turns out that some of our salespeople, they thought Slack would be a good way to communicate. And they had set up an account. Uh, and it was it was free. And you know, Slack doesn't do any verification to make sure you're actually a CEO or whatever. So, so somebody had opened an account. And we had to actually go to those employees and say, can we please have control of our own account? <laughs> and so then take that in. Uh, you know, that's... That's a challenge that we run into. It's just it's too easy to spin up some of the software. So do you guys do you guys uh, have visibility into unpaid or free subscriptions? Yeah, great question. Yeah, I think that uh, today the the way that we've really uh, taken our approach from a business perspective is we like to follow the money, right? Because that's where you're going to have a lot of challenge with where the it's not just um, the you know the invoices and and the, the things coming through your accounts payable team, but it's also the, all the things on the credit card which might as well be free if it's $5 and you're just going to expense it anyway. Um, so so we, we really at VendorHawk focus on the paid licenses, but I was just on the phone with a CIO earlier today and he was asking the same question. And um, really there's a few different ways to get after free. And uh, there's a few products out there that actually do a really great job uh, at, at dealing with this. And one of them um, was actually, I think it was uh, bought by Bluecoat, but it's, it, it was called the Elastica Cloud Sock or, you know, for Security Operations Center. And it does a great job basically scanning the network in a bunch of ways to understand all the software that you have running. Also, many of you probably know about Spiceworks, and they also have a, a, a kind of a monitoring tool for the network. So there's, I would say there's network monitoring tools you can look at. Um, you know, but as far as free software, the difficult thing is when it bubbles up into a paid thing, um, you got people that are already addicted to it. And so you got to, you got to try to mitigate, how am I going to figure out how to, you know, if I have five video conferencing tools, how do you get down to just the one that you want everybody on? You know, so it, it's a difficult problem. I'll, I'll admit. And that, that's a challenge we've certainly bumped into as our company has grown that we, we initially didn't didn't really care if different departments use different software for pro, for really the same same type of, of use. Uh, but as we've grown, we found that we really had to step in and say, we need to pick one. And and a lot of times we don't even care which one. Just pick one so it, it's easier to manage. Uh, we've yep. also had the challenge where even if we do pick one, uh, so I'll, I'll use Dropbox as an example because they're they're uh, a great example of this where. We decided, hey, let's use Dropbox as our primary storage for our, our company information, and, and that way there's this one place to go. I'll negotiate out one rate with them, and, and, and we did that when we were at 20 employees. Well, we've grown, and now we're at 55 employees, and you, you keep growing, and do we, do we go back and renegotiate that rate? If we cross some vendor threshold where now we're supposed to get a discount? You know, a lot of vendors will say, oh, if you buy 30 licenses, you get a 10% discount. But maybe maybe you only buy 20 licenses, and then you forget as you grow and, and you cross that threshold. So uh, yep. you know, managing vendors like this is, is beyond just knowing about them, right? Are you guys able to give us visibility into how many seats we have or where these discount breaks yep. might be? 
Yeah, so the question about seats is is pretty straightforward. So the hard thing is you have admin portals and some of these tools that will tell you, oh, you have this many seats. <clears throat> what we've done in a, in a lot of ways is we've actually been able to you know, work with the vendors and pull back uh, utilization. How well are you using that license? You know, it's, it's not just as simple as logins, right? It's you got to go past that to other other factors of use. You know, but the thing as far as um, what you mentioned about uh, actual uh, looking at you know the deals and the discount dynamics. You know, sometimes it's as sad as this is. Um, as as much as we all want it to be fair and equal, sometimes it's really dependent on. Uh, how savvy that sales professional is in giving you the range of possibility or how desperate or not desperate they are. Like I've been on that side of the fence, right? And, you know, and if they're already at their number, they're not as willing to give you that range. However, I would say, you know, if you're in IT and you're negotiating for seats, one of the things, and you know that you're growing, especially if you know that this number is going to change, one of the things you should think about negotiating into your, your deal is, hey, what's the next level uh, of you know of, of growth that I'm going to have into. So let's say let's take your example. Like let's say you did 25 seats when you first signed up, and you told your sales rep, hey, but we think we're going to be growing relatively quickly. So just ask them, hey, if I if I'm up at you know 40 or 50 in a year, what what is the seat cost at that point? And you start to feel out what those different levels might be because they usually have a pricing sheet where they can give bigger discounts. So you need to kind of tease that out and then you might pre-negotiate what that rate's going to be. And that helps you avoid any vendor increases. So if you can lock in that price in the future today, that that's a win for you and for your company. Well, I'm curious, is that something that you um, alert your customers to that, they, that they're putting in to VendorHawk? Hey, I've got 50 seats to Dropbox and I'm paying this much that... Uh, you can kind of recognize that, hey, you're, you're paying a lot more than you should be based on here's the average that our other customers are paying or, or um, maybe here's the rep you should call. Yeah, yeah. So we do actually put the, you know, the rep contact in there because that, that is a, a really important part of everything. But, yeah, I would say um, the, the things that we try to alert customers to are when you've got X amount of licenses. So let's say you've got, um, let's use a slightly bigger example. Let's say you've got 100 licenses and you're really only using, let's say, 60 of them. You rolled it out, and you got the early adopters and some other people in the middle, but there's just some people that are not going to let go of Dropbox, right? They're going to be using their box folder. They've got their Google Drive thing, you know? So what our product likes to do is, is we'll actually send out, uh, you know, renewal reminders and a campaign. So we get the people, you know, the, the admins of these tools looking back at the usage to figure out, wow, man, I'm like six months into this year-long deal, and I've only rolled out like at 60%. Right? And you don't ever really want to be, you know, the person that negotiated for, oh, we have to have 100 licenses, but you really only needed 60. So what that brings is this question of, well, okay, uh, how, how do we actually get more adoption and or um, how do we find ways to um, maybe scale back at that next renewal? So it's not always about cutting. It's also how can I, how can I get those 40 licenses that I've deployed how can I engage and get those people there? And for instance, that might mean calling your customer success rep with Dropbox and saying, "Hey, um, I, I need, I got these 40 folks. Can you like help me run this little campaign and get them engaged?" Right. So it's it's all about using what you bought. And uh, with VendorHawk, we, we we do actually pull back in in a kind of an automated way uh, the the licenses that you're using and not using, and help you kind of get smarter about that. But it's it's kind of difficult to do manually. So that's why we built our company because we wanted to automate it. <laughs> So, you know, speaking of the automation, um, 
So let's say that I'm at a company, we have a a thousand people or or however many, and and I'm worried that my SaaS subscriptions are just out of control. So I learn about VendorHawk, sounds great. I sign up. What does the process look like? Is it a you know, a software agent that we install or, or you know, how, how does the, the technical piece yeah. work to go out and discover all of that? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I was alluding to it earlier a bit, but we use the financials to, to solve uh, for what you've paid money to. So typically what, what happens is, you know, we sign an MNDA and we uh, it's usually a part of our contract and uh, we'll go out and discover software. So it usually takes upwards of 15 minutes for a finance admin to just basically give us access to the right amount of financial data and, and we actually have an algorithm that leverages machine learning um, to be able to kind of automatically pull through and understand uh, against a database of uh, 36,000 software vendors um, it, that essentially will help help you figure out in that thousand person company, statistically speaking, you're going to have somewhere between 500 and 1,000 cloud services that we will find. Um, it's, it's, it is a, is a staggering amount. And once we find all the software vendors, then we begin to figure out, okay, how can we pull in uh, you know, the, the contracts and the ownership? And how can we integrate to find license utilization, right? So it, it, it doesn't take much to get going. We find everything and return re- results back in a matter of days. And then before you know it, within a week or two, you've got this beautiful picture. Uh, it might not be beautiful if it's, there's a lot of surprises in there, right? But you have this picture of all the software in your business. And then the, the fun thing is actually figuring out how do we how do we figure out ownership going forward? How do we figure out um, the tough conversations that have to be had? And we make it really easy to find out, here's the low-hanging fruit. Here's where a lot of the, the problems tend to be with overlapping applications. Here's where here's some optimization opportunities over here. And so it, we can get a company of 1,000 employees going you know, to value within a matter of you know, somewhere between 12 or 14 days of, of working with them. So it's, it's a pretty powerful thing, and even faster if it's a smaller company. So I'm, I'm trying to think in my head of, of what this would look like for, for us. And you know, if you were to pull yeah. our credit card statements or, or whatever to run through and start identifying these services, a lot of them, you know, Office 365, it, it shows up right there. You know exactly what it is. Yeah. Uh, although I guess you'd have a big lump sum value, so you wouldn't necessarily know how the seats break down from yep. that. But there's other ones that are probably a little harder to figure out, like a, a lot of startups that we deal with when they're a, they're a brand-new, cutting-edge company, uh, and they'll show up on your credit card statement as Clever Bridge. Or well, with no digital. vowels, right? Yeah. It'll show up <laughs> as Clever Bridge with no E and, or, and two R's. Or yeah. Digital River, yeah. where it's the, the, the payment processor that shows up, not the actual company. So how, yeah. how do you overcome something like that? Yeah, no, great question. So what you alluded to there is financial transaction data can be incredibly messy, right? Or just completely vague or cryptic, right? So um, beauty of it is, is is our algorithm has been trained to do some of the, the more robust, like this kind of looks like Adobe, right? You know, so it'll actually, it'll do the lookalike analysis on, on your behalf, where a human eye might not actually understand that. The other thing too is, you know, once we get past, you know, there's always the reseller conversation too. So if you buy a bunch of things through CDW or Insight or, you know, one of those software one, um, we also can ingest some of the, the, the data and results that they have. So we know, oh, well, this payment here matches to this, you know, thing that you got from your reseller. Now here's the, the hard part though. So think about all the software vendors that come up that people just sign up for that um, they're in that 36,000 and you have never heard of it, right? So that th- that happens all the time, especially if you're in finance and you have, you you know like you know like let's say SAP and maybe NetSuite or you know Concur, right? So <clears throat> the thing that we do there 
is we actually in this in this uh, the ability to define all the software products is there's actually links that will go back to uh, G2 Crowd, which is a by the way it's an amazing uh, uh, product. Uh, their website, if you've never been to G2Crowd.com, amazing software review site. We actually uh, it's ironic today we announced our partnership with them, but in our application when you find this this random you know Zygo or whatever product it is here, you can click it. And then you can ultimately go and see what does this thing do? Oh, wow, it's like a database analysis tool that our data team is using for something, right? You can actually find out what those vendors are with a click of a button. Well, thank you for that segue on G2 Crowd. Uh, <laughs> IT Pro TV has 69 uh, reviews, averaging 4.8 out of 5 stars. We uh, we just did a lot of work on that. So <laughs> thank you for bringing that up. There, there we go. There we go. But uh, do we want to bring up uh, uh, your page as well? I know we have that here. Sure. I, I, I don't want to sound like your best salesperson, but I, I feel like with the money we'd be saving by, um, you know, figuring out all these things that we're not using anymore, um, that, that this is something yep. that, uh, you know, it, it's not really going to cost any money at the end of the day. You know, it's some, you can stop these. right there if you want because you can see that Yeah. That pie chart is super powerful. If you're, especially if you're in IT, everyone's always looking at, you know, you're spending my money, you're not making me money, right? Like that's kind of, and, and by the way, you only call me when something's broken, right? So you don't get any praise, you're not a hero in, in, some, in some regards. So what you see here, like this is the kind of pie chart that you walk into, you know, your CIO's office or you walk into, you know, a finance person's office and you can show them, hey, you know, I, especially this is great if this wasn't your fault. So if you're newer <laughs> or you just discovered an application, you can do an audit in VendorHawk and actually find out, you know, where the savings opportunities is. So it's a great way. We actually do that for free. Uh, if you if you're interested, just let us know afterwards. We'll be happy to do that. We we support Salesforce, Dropbox, Box, Zendesk, G Suite, Office 365, PagerDuty. The list goes on. So. And, and actually, a, okay. further down, it's actually right there. Sorry, I could have just had you scroll. Those are the ones that we have these great integrations with. So just let us know if we can help out with, with any of those ones. And then our pricing, going back to our own pricing, if you scroll down a little further, uh, or there it is right there. You got it. Never mind. Yeah, we, we unlike many vendors, we actually do disclose our pricing for the mid-market uh, you know, companies because we, we believe it's super important that you're actually, uh, we want to be the vendor that you want to work with. You know, so... If you scroll down a little bit, you'll see all the different kinds of, uh, you know, pricing metrics there that uh, things that contribute to it. But the fun part, I've got to show you this because you're showing this to everybody. Go up to the, the top there and on the professional one, um, grab the blue dot and drag it over to the right. So watch this. So it gets up and there's there, the last one's fun is actually we know the slider is fun, but you can just stop it. Just contact us. So. Um, anyway, so yeah, let us know if there's any way we can help. Yeah, I didn't expect you guys to jump into this page with me. <laughs> and you're like, please contact us immediately if you swipe the, the blue ball that way, that far to the right. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. What were you going to ask, Don, a second ago? Uh, you know, well, you, you were mentioning, like, the, the price, Peter, and, and with some of these services, uh, I know I've, I've forgotten about some where maybe I signed up for one seat and it costs $10 a month, and... You don't think about it. It's barely even a blip on the credit card statement. But other times there's bigger ones. And I know we've had streaming providers where we, we shifted our streams over to another provider. We canceled the old one, but the cancellation didn't go through, and they continued to bill a few months later. And, and yep. that's stuff that's easy to miss because the accounting department is used to seeing that bill, and they don't necessarily know that you canceled it. So staying on top of this stuff, can it, it can save your company a good bit of money. 
But I, I, I like how you, you know, you mentioned this really starts to pay off once you have a hundred or more employees that if you're a, a small company, you, you may not be able to realize that savings right away. I mean, you may, there's obviously variations out there, but, um, yep. you know, this is like having an employee who's constantly watching those finances and doing it 24 yeah. seven. Uh, imagine you had a, a, an employee who is kind of like a SaaS nerd that knew 36,000 different kinds of products and then could somehow uh, uh, automatically understand who was not using licenses. So it's a combination of like a big brother, you know, plus SaaS nerd, plus like a finance geek that under, you know, so uh, put all those people together and package them up and we're definitely a fraction of a cost of an employee. But uh, yeah, it, it's fun. It, it's a really fun journey that we take customers on. And, it, and the fact that it's automated, you, you would have caught that bill that showed up the next month because our system would have almost like a SaaS radar, if you will, and say, hey, you got another bill. And, uh, you know, especially if you knew that one canceled, you could talk to your finance person right away and say, don't pay that. Don't pay that. So, yeah, yeah. That, that's that's definitely helpful because that's that's something you, you know, like you said, you're used to seeing on the on the credit card bill mm -hmm. and and it uh, might just just gloss over. But well, normally this is the part of the interview where I'd ask um, how would people get a hold of you or find out more information. But we've We've been showing that. So, uh, anything else we should mention? Your the Twitter, the Facebook here. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's it's fun. I mean, our website's got a lot of the social handles there. I think that the biggest thing is um, if it's, it's it sounds interesting to you and your organization, uh, I really encourage you, especially if you're in in IT and you're you're trying to work with finance, or you're just trying to get a state of the union. Just reach out to us from our website. There's a couple different call to actions there. And a lot of them, you know, we, our team is really responsive and getting back about that. But generally speaking, um, once we hop on the phone, it, it, it doesn't take more than about 15, 20 minutes just to figure out some of the key challenges that you're facing. And then the funny thing is in IT, a lot of times you just slept this thing over to finance, usually like someone, a lower person in finance, and, uh, and, and they'll only spend another five or 10 minutes getting us some data and you'll have a very, very insightful view of all the software in your company. So uh, you just let us know, especially uh, if you want to mention, you know, I IT Pro TV and that. Um, you, you just, you just let us know, and we'll uh, we'll pass the love on to them. But um, yeah, it's been a pleasure talking with you today, and hopefully this has been insightful for you and your listeners. Yeah, definitely. And and for those of you that might be just listening on the audio here, um, that is VendorHawk.com, and and thankfully it has all the vowels and no extra letters, which <laughs> you know in the SaaS world is something that uh, that definitely <laughs> I, I tip my hat at you um, for that. So uh, thank you so much for that, but thank you also for joining us today, Patrick. Absolutely. Cool. Have a great day. Yep, you yeah, too. And those of you watching, uh, please stay tuned as the IT Pro TV podcast continues right now. Well, that was fantastic. Thank you to Patrick for joining us, and thank you to us for putting on just a, a great interview and asking some great questions there. Good job, Don. Yeah, I, I try. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, we wanted to end uh, today on a, on a light note. Well, light note. I don't know if this is light. It's light for us. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, this this is one of those stories that you just see and you say, yep, that that happened, and uh, and I have to watch that video now. Uh, so iPhone battery explodes after man bites uh, bites it to see if it's real. So I know uh, when I'm checking batteries, uh, whether it be double A's or, or really any kind, you got it. It's it's like gold where you want to take a little a little nibble uh, just to make sure. Yeah, it, like a Tide Pod, you want to just. Uh, you know, again, folks, please do not put batteries in your mouth. Can can we show this this video, Don? So th yeah, this I think appears so. to be it's a secondhand uh, electronic store in in China, I believe is what we've determined. Uh, and he and he takes a little little bite here uh, to 
See and if it's, it's real. It's odd, but before I hit play, um, you know, iPhones don't have removable batteries. They never have. Right. So if you go to a secondhand store and buy an iPhone battery, that's a pretty odd thing to be selling. So I, I can see why he might think it's not real, but he bites the thing in here. I'll play. Can I zoom in on this a little Which bit? Which let's say it, um, let's say it is real, you know, or isn't real. What, do you, what are you going for? Yeah. yeah. All right, let's, let's play this the, thing. All right. And uh, and here he goes. So he he bites it, and then it explodes. And yeah, and so. and really, he he dodged a bullet there that not exploding in his mouth. That is a, a substantial explosion. I mean, he, so go, some of it yeah. might be people just kind of falling backwards. Something crazy is happening. But I mean that that's a, an explosion. Now, remember when the Samsung Galaxy Note Seven? Had yeah. its fire gate or, or whatever. Um, oh, and you know, that was Uber Gizmo, but this was actually posted by the New York Post, so credit where credit is due. Thank you, New York Post. Um, but uh, when the Galaxy Note 7 was exploding, the problem was that when you would charge the phone, the battery would start to swell, and it didn't have enough room to swell. And there's two different chemicals inside of the battery. As long as those chemicals are separate, it's safe. If the chemicals come together, it explodes, right? So... When those Galaxy Note 7 batteries were swelling, they didn't have room to expand, and the chemicals would come together, a rupture would happen, and they'd explode. This guy biting the battery to find out if it's real must have punctured one of those chambers. And Well, because I'm assuming yeah. if it's real, it's a higher-quality battery. If it's not, then biting it would be even, even worse. If yeah. you think, hey, this is faulty, so I better make it explode. You know, what if this is just our ignorance, right? What if— mm. He was about to buy a case of 100 batteries, and the, the way to verify their authenticity is, is by the size of the explosion. Oh. So, you know, maybe that was the, uh, the intent. Sure, and he went back and said, yep, let me go ahead and pick all these up. Well, we apologize uh, to him um, for that and hope everyone is okay uh, over there and that he was able to find the battery yeah. he was looking for. Hey, uh, hey, Don, before we go, I do have one last thing uh, I wanted to mention, and if we can bring it up on your screen. Sure. Uh, we, uh, here in the United States, it is March, and uh, that means it is time for uh, things that I probably can't say because of copyright, but insanity basketball. and basketball. Uh, there's a, a tournament that takes place, the uh, NCAA tournament, I can say that. Um, so we decided to have our own little tournament here with the edutainers of IT Pro TV. Basically what we did is we gave each of them a basketball and 10 shots on the free throw line, and we said, winner take all. So uh, what we're asking you to do is uh, is go over to go.itpro.tv slash bracket, that's B-R-A-C-K dash I-T, uh, didn't come up with that, and I'm not a huge fan of it. Bracket, bracket. Uh, it's got it. Yeah, I know, but <laughs> but it says it. It's it, people already confused. Okay, anyway. Yeah. So uh, you go and you just basically uh, put in who you think is going to win. Uh, we've got the little um, you know basketball cards there, so you can take a look at each of the entertainers and, and make an educated um, decision. And uh, put in your email and entertainer name there. If you pick correctly, uh, we're going to show it on March 15th. Uh, we'll show the video of what took place. If you pick correctly, um, you'll get a link for a free swag item from IT Pro TV. Uh, it could be a T-shirt. could be a pop socket uh, for your phone or a webcam cover. I've got a couple of T-shirt designs on there now as well for you to choose from. So please uh, head on over there. That's go.itpro.tv slash bracket with a dash, B-R-A-C-K dash I-T. 
And I didn't realize that Justin was going to outclass me so much. Otherwise, yeah. I would have tried to, to kick mine up a notch. But uh... Well, we came up with nicknames for everybody. And uh, once we saw his outfit, we had to change his. He was, you know, like Duncan <laughs> Dennison or something. But, uh, yeah, the closer. Uh, yeah. You got, yeah, Cherokee Ball and Boost. Uh, Adam, we changed his uh, nickname as well after his outfit. So, Adam, uh, the Uniballer Gordon there. Um who else do we got? Ronnie, Ronnie with the uh, professional uh, short waistline there. Yep. And what uh, <laughs> what Ronnie said is uh, he used to play basketball until the basketball shorts got longer than his actual pants, <laughs> and he had to quit. Um, and now he just tells kids to get off his lawn. Apparently. All so. right. Well, that URL was go.itpro.tv/brack-it. Or brack it. Be sure to check it out. Uh, cast your vote. Obviously, most of you will vote for me because I'm amazing. But, uh, you know, do look over the basketball cards and, and choose who you think is uh, the best basketball player. Well, for those watching, did you did you play any basketball growing up? Were you a varsity, no. junior varsity? Yeah, I was on the academic team. Academic team. So take yeah. that in consideration when making <laughs> your votes, folks. Uh, I'm not sure if anyone else played basketball. Uh, I actually got to watch them shoot, so I'm... Really not sure if anyone ever played <laughs> basketball um, or had seen one uh, prior to this event. But uh, thank you for watching today and listening. Uh, please go ahead and rate us and review us. Share this podcast with your friends. Uh, thank you to Patrick for joining us on the interview. Um, and thank you all for watching. And thanks, Don, for having me here. And until next time, go vote.